Welcome to this week's message at Corner Bible Church. We're so glad that you could join us. If you'd like more information on our church, you could check us out at our website, cornerbiblechurch.com, or you can like or follow us on Facebook. Now here's this week's message. Thank you for listening. Good morning. How's everyone doing today? Awesome, awesome. Uh, my name is Pastor Davis. I am one of the pastors here at Corner Bible Church, and I'm super excited we get to open up God's Word today. So if you have your Bibles, uh, please open them up. Uh, we are going to be in Luke chapter 2 today. We moved on past chapter 1. It took us five weeks to get through chapter 1. It's going to take five weeks to get through chapter 2. Totally kidding. But we're going to be in verses 1 through 21 this morning. Luke 2, verses 1 through 21. And if you are a note taker today, uh, the title of today's message is called The Prelude of Hope. The Prelude of Hope. Now, I'm uh, sitting today as I give this message. You might have seen our camera guy making fun of me on our announcement video. Um, But I uh, had a a fall a couple weeks ago. Um, I know you guys all picture me as the epitome of what athleticism is. Um, So I try to live up to that. Uh, But uh, a couple weeks ago, I was playing with my niece out in the backyard at my in-law's house. And we were playing this game she invented. Uh, She's two. That's probably important to the story. And uh, we were playing this game called Skyball. Basically, the rules are pretty simple. You kick the ball, she laughs, she thinks it's funny, you chase it, and then she tells you to kick it again. So uh, that's what we were doing. Uh, She was laughing, having a good time. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to make this girl's day. I'm going to kick this ball absolutely as hard as possible. Mind you, I'm barefoot. And uh, I wind back for the biggest kick my little homeschool body can do, and... uh, I missed the ball, I went straight into the ground, and I felt something in the middle of my foot just go, just like that, and uh, I went down like a sack of potatoes, and that's kind of the story. So um, I'm doing a little bit better. I, the x-ray said uh, nothing's broken, it's just a really bad sprain. So uh, I hope that is true. So uh, we, that's how I got to be here. So uh, Luke 2, verses 1 through 7, take a look down at your text with me this morning. It says this, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quinarius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger. Because there was no place for them in the inn. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for this day. God, I thank you that you are a God who came and was literally hope incarnate. God, I want to pray for us this morning, as I'm sure for many of us, this is a very familiar story. And I think for many of us, maybe we heard this growing up during Christmas time, or we've seen the nativity displays around town, or whatever the case may be. God, I think it becomes so normal and commonplace for us that we miss the wonder of what you did here. So God, I'm asking that you open us up today. 
I pray that you show us the wonder of your word. God, break our hearts. Open us up to be the people you want us to be. That we not just see a piece of you that we like, but that we see you for who you are. In your name we pray. Amen. So for the past several weeks, as we were walking through chapter 1 of Luke together, uh, we were talking about these characters of Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph, and what we were doing was really putting flesh and bone on these people. Because like I mentioned, I think it's really easy for us to think of these characters as myth and legend, when reality is they are flesh and blood normal people. They weren't super spiritual. They weren't these amazing uh, people that were like better, larger than life. They were normal people that go through real ups and downs in their life. They felt doubt. They had a fearful expectation sometimes of what others might think of them. They struggled with uh, the meh seasons that we've talked about. These characters that we have spent time with for the past several weeks that God has been using are these normal, everyday people that are not all that different from us. Not all that different from our doubt or our feelings of walking in the spiritual desert or our bracing for the impact of what other people think of us if we live differently. See, in the midst of this story, we see normal people called out into obedience by the same God who called out Moses and Jephthah and Samson and Aaron and all these different people that the Old Testament looked up to. And it's the same God who calls out to us. Last week, if you were here with us, uh, Pastor Ish did an awesome job working through the passage with Elizabeth and Zechariah when uh, John the Baptist was born. And we talked about during that uh, session that uh, we talked about that uh, the people around them when John was born wanted them to name the baby after Zechariah or another relative because that's what the culture did back then. You named him after the father or another relative. But God had told them it was going to be John because John was a gift. John was going to be a prophet. John was going to be the forerunner of the Messiah that was coming into the world. And they went against all culture and they named him John. I think as I was reflecting this week on uh, this passage, I noticed that in these past five weeks, we have seen all the moving pieces that God has been putting into place in God's plan to line up the time for the Messiah. We've seen the people that God has put in the right places. We've seen God pour faith into people that needed faith in the midst of hard times. We've seen biblical prophecies lining up to make the time ripe for the Messiah. And there was one more prophecy I wanted us to kind of look through in another way that God's hand moved to make this happen. And we see that in chapter 2, verse 1. Take a look down with me again at that text. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quinarius was the governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. See, during chapter 1, Luke focused on what was going on in Israel, in the different towns around Israel. And in chapter 2, he pans out and he looks at what's going on in the larger sense, or in this case, the Roman Empire. What's happening here? And we see his perspective in the name he drops here, Caesar Augustus. 
Now, if you know your history at all, you know Caesar Augustus wasn't actually his real name. His birth name was actually Octavian. And his grandmother was actually Julius Caesar's sister. Anybody know who Julius Caesar is? Okay, hopefully most of us. Okay, public school system works. Great. Uh, And what happened is as Octavian was being raised up, uh, Julius Caesar saw a promise in this guy, and he actually adopted Octavian, and he actually raised him as his own and uh, officially made him the official heir of the Roman Empire in 45 B.C., Now, if you know history, you know this is actually a really important year because the very next year, 44 B.C., was the year that Caesar was killed by his own senators. And what happened when Julius Caesar died was that Rome shattered into three parts. And there was these three leaders that rose to power, a man by the name of Lepidus, a man by the name of Mark Antony, and a man by the name of, you guessed it, Octavian. And these three thought they could have a fragile peace over this uh, sharded Roman Empire, but very quickly they fought each other. Very quickly it went to civil war, and they fought one another, and there was bloodshed all over the Roman Empire, and that lasted for 13 years until Octavian came out on top and defeated the other two leaders. In 31 BC, we see Octavian rush in, he reclaims the throne, he restores the Roman Empire, And he names himself Caesar Augustus, which means sacred and exalted. He didn't have an ego problem, I promise you. What we see here is after Augustus takes the throne, we see a stability settle over uh, the Roman Empire. See, in the years before, uh, when there was all this infighting, there was bloodshed everywhere. There was chaos everywhere. There was conflict everywhere. And when this uh, worldly man, Augustus, comes in, who is not a great guy, we wouldn't say this guy's a a good dude, uh, but he brought stability. He brought vast sums of money that allowed to build garrisons all over the Roman Empire to prevent riots, to prevent all these uprisings from happening. And he provided this stability and organization to the empire. And this is important because the world that Jesus was born into 20 years prior was chaotic. And now it's stable. And it's ready. And we see here in verse 1 that during Augustus' reign, he required a census. A census that would require them to go back to their town of origin. And it was not a census to count the people because he's super great and wants to know how many mouths to feed. No, he wants to know how to tax people so he can get more stuff done. Government stuff, you know. And our passage continues. It says, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So we see within the midst of this historical moment that's taking place where everybody has to go to their town of origin, we are introduced to Mary and Joseph again. And we are introduced to them who are caught up in their government's wishes to go to this town that they don't want to go to right now because Mary is nine months pregnant. And we meet them on their journey. I guarantee you they're not excited about this. Moms, when you were pregnant, when you were nine months pregnant, how many of you want to do a cross-country road trip on a bicycle? Probably not many of you. Going across the country here is not like, you know, jumping in your car after service, hitting up the Chinese place in Holland and uh, coming back for lunch. It's 90 miles away. 
The distance between Nazareth and Bethlehem was 90 miles, and you're riding on a donkey, which is going about two and a half miles an hour, so you're looking at three to five days of travel up and down mountains and caves and all of that kind of stuff. It's not going to be fun. I guarantee you, Joseph was thinking, I hope her water doesn't break halfway between Nazareth and Bethlehem. (laughs) It was not going to be good. But the craziest thing about the midst of this inconvenience is we see God working behind the scenes. Because you see, I bet Mary and Joseph's plan was for them to have the baby in Nazareth, and that's where they lived. But there was a prophecy in Micah 5, verse 2, that says the baby was going to be born in Bethlehem, not Nazareth. So even in the midst of inconvenience, in the midst of not wanting to uh, uh, do this thing, we see God working out the details to fulfill his word. Which brings us to our next part. While they were there, the time came for her to be delivered. They made it without her water breaking. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. The text tells us when she got, they got there, she had to be delivered. And since there was no room for them in the inn, they had to deliver him in a manger where animals had probably eaten from, maybe just that afternoon where they, uh, throw, the, they throw the hay off and they put Jesus in because that's the only place there was. Now, what's interesting is that a lot of scholars disagree on whether Jesus was actually born at the inn or not. See, the word here for inn in the Greek is actually translated guest room, which is interesting because it typically, when that's used in the New Testament, it's, a, it's, it's talking about a family member's house. Like if your in-laws came over, you put them in your guest room. So what some scholars actually think was that when Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem, uh, there may not have even been an inn. They might have actually gone to some of Joseph's family since he, lived, he was from there. And they're the ones who turned him away. They're the ones who put him in the barn. They're the ones who put him there. But regardless of what the case is, whether it was in the inn or in the Joseph's family home, as Mary and Joseph are forced to go away from their comfort to deliver this baby in the midst of the animals. I guarantee you there was no doctor. There's probably no OBGYN. There's probably no epidural. Um, there's probably no those cool like home birth pools they have nowadays. There's probably none of that. There's hay and dirt and the mooing of cattle. I think oftentimes we think of the rejection that Jesus faced, we think of the cross. We think of him nailed on the cross, and we think of uh, uh, God turning his back on him. We think of the Pharisees uh, shouting, crucify him. We see all of these things, even the disciples running away. But I think we often forget that Jesus' first rejection took place the moment he was born. Think about it. These people, the innkeeper or Joseph's family, literally had hope incarnate on their living room floor, and they said, go to the barn. And the amazing thing is here, Jesus hasn't spoken a single word yet. He can't speak. He wouldn't speak for a couple years probably. But he's already speaking volumes. This mosaic thing we talk about where there's all these pieces of Jesus, we get to see the first piece here of Jesus when we're introduced to him. We get to see his humility. See, the beautiful part about this story was Jesus wasn't born in a king's palace. He could have moved. God could have moved in Caesar Augustus' heart and said, hey, you're going to have that baby, and it's going to be awesome. You're going to have this army, and you're going to come in. You're going to usher in uh, Jesus' kingdom. It's going to be a great thing. He didn't do that. 
He could have said, oh, you're going to have a nice warm place at the end, and you're going to have this crackling fire. It's going to be a great thing. You're going to keep nice and warm. He didn't do that. Not even a proper hospital. He was born amidst the dirt and the grime of human life. From the very beginning, Jesus experienced the most humble of human circumstances and conditions. In fact, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul would go so far to say, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What Paul gets at here is he says he, could have had, he had every right to come down and bust down the door and say, y'all people are going to serve me. If I'm going to die on the cross for you, you're going to serve me while I'm here. But he didn't. He laid down his rights. He laid down what was owed him. And he took part in being human. And because of that, the first physical breath that Jesus took was the prelude to a billion first spiritual breaths that people were throughout the generations were going to be able to take because Jesus humbled himself, emptied himself, and came. You see, despite Jesus' humble beginnings, Jesus was going to build a kingdom that wasn't going to expire. See, Caesar Augustus reigned for a long time, from about 30 BC uh, to 14 BC, uh, AD, uh, when he died. And then his son took over after him. And guess what? He ruled for a while, and he died. And his son took after him, and he died. A few hundred years later, the Roman Empire fell apart. So did Persia and Babylon and Egypt. And uh, a few generations later, the, uh, the Kang Dynasty and uh, the Nazi regime and even up to today. Because all of our kingdoms, all of our economic doctrines and our philosophies and our ideas of what makes a good government, what makes a healthy government, all of these things are going to expire all of our political movements, all of our kingdoms disappear one day. But what Jesus is doing is that the birth of Christ set off a sound of victory that announced a kingdom that would not end, and a kingdom where there's going to be room at the table for everyone. One of my uh, favorite writers, he wants, uh, his name is Frederick Buechner. Uh, he says this, what keeps the wild hope of Christmas alive year after year in a world notorious for dashing all hopes is the haunting dream that the child who was born that day may yet be born again, even in us. Love that quote. Because that's the story of Jesus. He humbled himself. He came from the humblest beginnings that he may, he may remake you and me. He entered the grime and the dust of our existence that he could save us from our sin. He didn't come to make you religious. In fact, as we go throughout the book of Luke, you're going to see the people that Jesus had the most issues with were the people who were the most religious. He didn't come to make man religious. He came to make a new type of man. A man that was renewed. That was different. That was how we were supposed to be before sin entered the world. 
And on the birth of Christ, he made that message very clear. Take a look down at verse 8 with me. It says this. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem. Let us see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. You see here, we're introduced to the shepherds who were just a little short distance away from Bethlehem. They were keeping watch over their flocks at night. I bet it's not a very exciting job. I bet you're just kind of sitting there. And all of a sudden, poof, there's these angels pop up in the sky. And they start talking about how hope has been born into the world today. And that everything's going to be different. And there is hope again. They're overcome with it. And then we have to do something about this. See, the beautiful part about this story is that uh, God made sure everyone knew. And the first people he stopped to tell were the shepherds. See, the shepherds are people that were probably one of the most looked-over people in the New Testament. In fact, there's a lot of scholars that say that shepherds didn't have much of a say even in court because they were uh, labeled as people who were a little above thieves. But these are the first people that... Uh, God tells about Jesus' birth. And of course, if we were to go to Matthew chapter 1, we could see that uh, the wise men from the east were also told about it. And what we see is people from the worst, uh, the most overlooked part of society and the people on the highest end of the society are told about this birth of this coming king. And what God is doing in this moment is he's saying wherever you find yourself on the socioeconomic pole, wherever you find yourself in the social structure, this gospel, this baby that was born in a stable is for you. And the same is true today. Some of you here may feel like you're the ones the world has passed over. Maybe you feel like you've been left behind. Or maybe you just feel like the world didn't deal you the right hand. Or maybe even have the right deck of cards. And if that's true, the best news in the world is the gospel's for you. For you. You may feel like people have forgotten you that family's forgotten you, that your job's left you behind. But God hasn't. He reached down. He begs you to come home. Or maybe you're on the opposite end of that spectrum and you feel like uh, you were dealt all the right cards. You have this awesome family and you're like, hey, I have little to no trauma. And so that's great. But the good news for you is the gospel's for you. Because guess what? No matter how good you think you are, you are just as broken. You're just as screwed up. The gospel's for you too. But we see the shepherd's response in the next verse. Take a look down again. And they went with haste 
And they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary, she treasured all these things up in her heart and pondered them. And then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told. Then we see them get up right away and they rush back into Bethlehem to see this baby that had just been born. I hope they left at least one guy behind to wash the sheep so they didn't fall off a cliff or something like that. We don't know. Text doesn't tell us. Um, but we see when they get there that there's a crowd of people. This stood out to me this week. I've never noticed this before. But it says, And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered. We see there's a crowd of people that show up with the shepherds. And some scholars don't know if that's just other people who were already in the stable or whether uh, a lot of scholars actually think the shepherds, as they're coming to town, were making such a commotion. They were pounding on doors. They were talking to people in the markets. They were doing all these things. And there was a crowd like, what in the world is going on with these guys? But all the people marveled at what the shepherds said. Because the shepherds direct wonder of God and what God had done produced a response in the people who listened. And church, the same is true of us. When the world sees your passion, when the world sees your passion for God's word, when uh, the world sees your passion for what God has done in you, how he's been working in you, how he's been uh, throwing the sin away from you, how he's been tearing the idols down in you, when they see that, that's contagious. That's contagious. This week, I had a friend of mine. He's an atheist friend of mine. He sent me a video. It was like a news story compilation of people being interviewed on the news. And it was a video of these guys who claimed to be Christians. And they were basically, uh, they they were answering questions. The answers they gave gave such a political uh, bent that was totally contrary to Scripture. They They were claiming Scripture over these political beliefs. And then the other ways they were answering just totally belittled people. It totally ripped people apart. And my buddy sent this to me, and he says, thoughts, question mark? And I I replied back, and I said, it makes me really sad when people who claim to be Christians respond like this, because they make us look horrible. And then I I got kind of passionate, because when people speak on behalf of Christ, and they use Scripture to do it, and they totally butcher the whole thing, and they are like, not, like totally contrary to what Scripture says. It kind of makes me a little upset. So I, I, got, I was talking with him, and I walked him through Scripture point by point by point by point by point by point throughout the whole video. And uh, I said, this is what Scripture actually says. It's totally different from what these guys said. They shouldn't have talked. And he's like, dude, you need to start a YouTube channel debunking this stuff. <laughs> he's like, I would watch that every single day. But church, our passion matters. It matters. In fact, if you want to take a quick test, I want you to ask yourself right now, what fills your heart with the most joy? What fills your heart with the most excitement? What fills your heart with the most wonder? You got it? That's what you worship. I want you to, don't, mis- don't misunderstand me here. You, I'm not saying you can't enjoy other things. I hope that when you see your spouse, you see your children, that you're with them, that, that fills you with joy. I hope even on the hard days when you want to rip your hair out, it fills you with joy still. It's supposed to. 
I hope that when uh, your uh, favorite sports team uh, comes back from behind and scores the winning touchdown, I hope you jump and shout from your couch and run down the hallway. That should fill you with excitement. And I hope that when you look at a sunset over Lake Michigan and you see just the pouring reds come off the waves, I hope that fills you with wonder. Those things, God's given us those things. But that which fills you with the most wonder, the most joy, the most excitement, that's the thing you worship. And we see in this moment, the shepherds were changed because they wondered. They were caught up. And it changed the people around them. Church, can the same be said for you? When people interact with you, do they see the wonder of what God has done in your life? Or does it look like them? The other thing that really stands out to me in this text is that line that says, Mary treasured and counted them up in her heart. Love that line. The word in Greek for treasure doesn't mean to like hoard. It means to preserve, to keep within oneself lest it be forgotten. I love that. You see, for Mary, it's been an eventful nine months. There's been a, there was an angel that appeared on her living room floor and said, hey, you're going to be the mother of Jesus. That's exciting, right? And then she saw Elizabeth and saw the whole process with John the Baptist, how that come to fruition. She saw the biblical prophecies lining up. She saw uh, Jesus, she held him in her hands, and all of a sudden, as they were probably uh, dealing with this, all of a sudden, all these shepherds show up with a bunch of people from around town because a lady that just gave birth wants to have a bunch of people there. That's uh, obviously what she wants, right? And, uh, and they're all there, and she's like, what in the world is going on? She's holding these things in her heart. She's grasping with these fulfillments that God has brought. She's been holding on to God's promises, and she's going to look forward to these coming days that are uncertain. Because in 33 years, if we flip to the end of Luke, we're going to see Mary before the cross looking on her son dying. And I believe the only reason that she was able to stand there in that moment and see her whole world fall apart and probably wonder, did I mishear that angel? Did I mishear what's actually happening here? Is, the, is Jesus really going to do this? How in the world is, is life going to come out of death? I bet the only reason she was able to do that was because she hung on to God's promises in the moment. She hung on to what God had been doing in the moment. Church, are you hanging on to the things that God has done in your life? Are you hanging on to answered prayers? Are you hanging on to the fulfillments? Are you hanging on to God's promises in the moment so that when your world falls apart, because guess what? All of our worlds fall apart at some point. That You're going to be ready. There was this family I read about. I, I can't remember where. I tried to find it. But as a young couple, uh, they... Uh, they, uh, as a young couple, they would, whenever they'd have a difficulty, they'd pray about it together. And then after God answered that prayer, they took a rock and went a sharpie, and they'd write what happened down on that rock, and they put it in a jar. And then once a month or so, they'd pour out that jar, and they'd look at the ways God had answered prayer over the past several years. And they'd reflect on it. And when the hard seasons came, they would dump out that thing again, and they'd look at the promises. They'd look at the answer to prayer. 
Then as the years went on, uh, they had children, uh, and they'd, uh, as the children started to grow up, they put their kids on the counter, they poured out that jar of, of promises and fulfillments and answered prayer, and they would read those to the kid, and they'd tell them the story of what happened. Timmy, this is when God showed up. This is when God answered this prayer. And then as the kids growing up, uh, they started writing their problems down, and they started adding these things. They were building the faith of their children. Church, are you building the faith of your children? Because do not, do not shove religion down their throat. Don't pound religion into their heads. It doesn't work. Show them the promises of God. Show them God's faithfulness. Show them that there's a real God on the other end of the line that actually does stuff. He's alive and he's active. Because that's what builds a faith that actually stands. Our passage ends with this. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. At the end here, we see Mary and Joseph accepting the call. It's one thing to carry a baby for nine months. It's another thing to hold it. It's another thing to raise it. And I bet as they stood on the precipice of this call of Jesus actually being here, I bet they felt uncertain. I bet they felt like God was calling them into this thing, but uh, they probably didn't know what that next step looked like. And maybe you're here today and you feel like that. You feel like you're standing on the precipice of God's call and God's plan. You know he's there. You know he's working. You know he's doing things. Are you willing to take the next step? Maybe this morning you were here and you're wrestling with a sin. And it's been rough, and you know, uh, you know the next step is repentance, but maybe the step after that is uh, actually telling your spouse. Maybe the next step is uh, getting an accountability partner. Maybe it's finally just going to counseling for what is going on in your marriage. Or maybe you're here today and you know God wants you to go deeper in your faith. You know he's calling you deeper. Maybe that next step is just setting a time in your day, whether in the morning, whether at night, in the afternoon, you can cut out all the distractions and you can sit down and you can talk with God. Open up God's word and read it. Or maybe it's just time to ask someone to mentor you. Maybe it's time to join a small group. Or maybe you felt God nudging you to start sharing your faith with somebody and you put some specific on your mind and maybe the next step is just having them over for a cup of coffee and telling them your story, engaging them in a practical relationship. Or maybe you're here today and you've never welcomed Christ into your life and you feel God nudging you saying, come home. There's redemption here. There's hope here. Maybe the next step is to do that. But wherever you find yourself this morning, wherever you find yourself in God's story he's telling you, are you willing to take the next step, hanging on to God's promises in the moment? I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to transition into communion. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. God, I pray for us in here that maybe you need to take the next step. Maybe we don't know what the next step is. But I'm asking you to reveal it. Make it clear. And give us the faith to take it, that step walk with you. 
wherever you take us. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's message here at Corner Bible Church. If you would like more audio resources, please follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. Or you can go online and visit us on our webpage at cornerbiblechurch.com.